Hi there. Welcome to the Sayers Conversations podcast. Another special innovators edition. Today, our very special guest is Lee Jasper, the co-founder of Aconex, amongst many other things. Enjoy. Okay, this is a Sayers Conversation. These, these are the conversations that we're having around we're calling them the innovators, um, and I tell you what, we've got one of we've actually got one of the world's best, uh, certainly one of Australia's, and most definitely one of Melbourne's great innovators, great entrepreneurs. His name is Lee Jasper. Um, he is a co-founder and former CEO of Aconex. If I said that correctly, I would say with a bit of an Australian accent, like Aconex. Aconex, 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 Aconex. Yeah. Um, he sold it to Oracle in 2019. Forget this, 1.6 billion dollars. I said 1.6 billion dollars. Lee, welcome to the conversation. Great to speak to you, Russell. I'm so thrilled that you're here. Um, I really am. We first met during the COVID pandemic. Yep. Um, early days, really, I reckon. So what, mm. if we say March, let's call March, the you know the gun went off in March. Yep. Probably April, maybe May. Yep, that's right. Um, and we met via a WhatsApp group. And, uh, and this WhatsApp group, I, I was invited to join it. And all of a sudden, I found myself amongst a very interesting um, group of individuals. So maybe you just tell the listeners a little bit about what was created. Yeah, sure. So we, it's interesting. It was a group of entrepreneurs, pretty much. Um, and what happened was, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs kind of know each other, innovators, um, you know, talk to each other about how they build their businesses. And uh, a couple of them got together and said, look, you know, this COVID thing's happening um, maybe we can do something to help. And so the group was pulled together. Um, a great range of people, I won't go through who, everybody who was in it, but um, you know, mostly entrepreneurs, tech entrepreneurs, business leaders, um, quite an eclectic group, but a group that wanted to do something for the country and took a view that as entrepreneurs and particularly as people who built businesses that we could potentially move faster than government in doing certain things. Um, so getting supply of um, PPE, for example, is one thing that the that group was early, worked on. Wasn't it? Very early, yeah. um, so helping the government with that. Um, through to contact tracing, so personally did quite a bit of work on contact tracing with uh, with Alan Finkel. Um, so that was that was great. Um, yeah. But just yeah, you know, where we can move and do something for the country, it's often hard for government to do that. So so it was about as you say, it was about speed. And at that time, I mean, we didn't know really where didn't know what was happening. Yeah, yeah. no right. one knew what was happening. Uh, speed was really important. That's it. Yep. Bad decisions got made as a result of speed as well, but it's sort of I think forgivable. Yep. Um, because speed was the number one element that people were facing into. Yep. Um, and yeah, the first story I heard was around PPE. So, so just tell us a bit more about what you did on the, what you or the group did around PPE. Yes, yeah, so that was being able to. I don't have to go back through all the details, but it was pretty much being able to get supply. So people that knew people in companies, and it was just connecting the dots in many respects, um, yep. getting access to companies that were producing PPE, uh, working with, I mean, the Federal Department of Health with um, with Greg Hunt at the time, and just just trying to f- move quickly uh, in terms of getting supply and yep. having government, you know, almost front run. And so what happened in a couple of cases was the some people in the group actually funded buying certain things. So the other one was ventilators that, um, again, I won't mention names, but one of the group worked, worked very uh, closely or very deeply on that and um, was able to get, you know, build ventilators faster yes. than we would have been able to do through yes. government. So yes. it's just a way of uh, entrepreneurs moving fast. And I think, you know, this sense of, um, it was perfect environment for um, normally government's very, so to give you one example, just telehealth back in the day, if you remember my wife works in health, that um, yep. they'd taken deck, you know, 15 years I've been talking about telehealth and during COVID within three months, Bang. all of a sudden it's, it's, it's happening. Um, so this, 
sort of unique time where tech yes. was being used rapidly um, to respond to issues and you know, normally that wouldn't happen. So it was a great environment. Okay, so I'll ask the question then. Um, you know, the, the great, we're going to attribute it to Churchill, don't waste a crisis. <laughs> Um, so you're right, telehealth, crisis not wasted. As a result, telehealth instantaneously was, you know, yep. was upon us. Do you think we did waste the crisis? Uh, I think we didn't respond as well as we could have in some, in a lot of ways. I think we, some of the things have changed, like telehealth, for example, that's now coming backwards. So yeah. um, it's harder to it's so get a video. You know, and look, it's not necessarily appropriate for everything in health, but certainly for a lot of stuff, you know, telehealth or video health is, is great, but it hasn't, it hasn't necessarily maintained that same level. Um, I think, you know, as a, look, I come from a small business background. My parents ran a, a garage up in the country, a, a service station and, what it did to business, I don't think we've quite seen the impact of that. Like, right. You know, then I think that's where, you know, the, the outworking of that, you know, what's happened, de- you know, years later, um, where we just lost a lot of small businesses during that period. So I think there's some things that we didn't do as well as we could have. But look at, you know, the environment changed rapidly, and yep. we, you know, government had to do what it had to do. But you know, the interesting about this group was we were able to front-run government is kind of how I'd put it, and do things that government totally. couldn't do and then government would come in behind where it made sense. I think that was one of the interesting things, wasn't it, for me, was, um, you know, government took the lead, obviously, uh, and, you know, they, they put in place various rules and regulations and they, they were determining um, how we were living our lives. In the meantime, a lot of business did actually reach out and a lot of business mm. did, did stuff themselves. I mean, in my world, in the, you know, the advertising and the brand world, you know, Vax the Nation was a was yeah, a campaign, huge, yeah. yeah, amazing, huge campaign, yeah. which was created by and Craig his, Winkler really drove that, and uh, it was a great thing that he drove with you and well, a number of others, right? It was and you, great result. Well, so. that, that was so. Actually, there was two. There was Vax um, million dollar Vax million dollar Vax, yeah. yeah. Oh, and Vax, yeah. There's the two ones, yeah. yeah so yeah, Vax right. the Nation was the music industry, yeah. So entrepreneurs, yep. a lot of entrepreneurs in the music industry, all all saying, okay, what can we do to you know to create the country. Uh, to get energised around vaccine, because you remember yep. there was a lot of negativity. Lot of yep. Yeah, a lot of hesitancy. And then, of course, Million Dollar Vax, which Craig, as you say. I mean, and the great thing about that case study, um, we, you know, the case study, we've actually proven that that uh, Million Dollar Vax accelerated the race of rate of vaccine in the country. Yeah, right? that's a great result. Right, yeah. and, and from my point of view, that was sort of my um, involvement in that came from that original... I mean, I just call it a WhatsApp group. Yes, yeah. Literally just started as a group of people talking about things, batting around ideas. And interesting, I think we were meeting, what, two or three times a week at the height of COVID and just yep. batting around ideas, you know, how yeah. can we help? Um, and, uh, yeah, it was um, yeah, using innovation, moving fast and uh, having a bit of fun in the process trying to help people. It was very good. Now let's talk about a- um, Aconex. Yep, Aconex, uh, yeah. Acor- <laughs> like Acorn, Russell. Acornex, Acornex. Acornex, just like a big old A... Well, okay. Americans would say... Um, yes, Econex. Yeah. E- yeah, that's right. Econex. That's how they'd say it. A-C-O-N-E-X, for yeah. those that are wondering. Now, what I know is you sold it for $1.6 billion, but I don't know a lot else. Tell me about it. So my background was... Um, well, I grew up in the country of Victoria. I um, came to boarding school here in Melbourne. Uh, one of... Um, well, a friend from boarding school, Rob Philpott, was in construction. I'd been at McKinsey and Company, and it was back... This is going back a bit, showing my age, but back in the first dot-com booms. So this is 98, 99, yes. 2000. And the view, well, my view was that, well, I had the, um, I was fortunate to be able to work on a number of internet related projects at McKinsey. So I was seeing the impact of the internet on multiple industries. And right. Rob was at uh, Multiplex at the time. And we started talking about you know, the internet and how it could change the way construction projects were delivered. And you know, this is going back to when there was no 
internet on site. There was barely ADSL at the time. Um, we had a dial-up modem in our first office. But the view we had was that if you connected people over the internet, it would make for a much smoother management of the project. And you bring you bring every, everybody from the head contractor, the owner, the architects, engineers, et cetera, the subcontractors, all together on one platform. Okay, so you created the platform? Yep, built it here in Australia, in Melbourne. And yep. what year? Uh, so it's back in 2000, yep. once upon 2001. So this is early, early internet. I mean, this is pre-AWS. Um, there was no, I mean, we were putting our own servers into racks down in South Melbourne and um, <laughs> very early days internet. And, but it's um, a great tech story, right? Classic yeah. tech story. Yeah, and we didn't, in, interesting, we were software as a service, which is now very common, um, it was called ASP back then, but we had a view that the internet would become ubiquitous and we wouldn't need to install um, any software on, you know, on a construction site. We did, it would just all be accessed over the internet. But, you know, fortunately the internet got, got fast. If it didn't get fast, we would have struggled. But, um, you know, the, the speed of the internet accelerated and obviously people connected to it for other reasons, um, but, you know, we were able to ride that wave of internet connection. So as you were building the, as you were building the platform, um, did, did you go to potential buyers and say we're building this and if and if we build it will you be interested or did you build it like did you do the classic build it and they came no we probably a little differently yeah we we went to customers as we were built like first almost so um, i was wondering yeah so we 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 went through and fortunately in um our early investors were also property often property investors and construction um you know directors of construction companies so we had a people who would use the system they're also our investors. So we had our first customers kind of lined up as we were building the system. And then once we released it, we spent a lot of time out on site with our users, understanding how they would use it, what they would do day to day. And it's, um, I think it's really hard to build something without understanding the market. And I think, yeah, some people get that right, but our view at the time, unfortunately, was, you know, you've got to really build it with your customers. So 2000 you started. When did yep. you know you were onto something that was going to um, be as successful <laughs> as it was? Uh, well, I think, so an interesting question. I think we had, um, we were overly optimistic to start with. We thought we'd be bigger than Microsoft and you know, had you know, crazy ideas. And then I think reality set in a year or so later when it was, you know, and this is hard work selling a internet, an internet-based system to construction companies that, mostly didn't have internet on site. So right. it'd start by explaining to them why why they need the system and then, well, they might need the internet to yeah, run yeah. it on. What's so, the internet? Yeah, what's the internet? Literally, what's the internet? Um, yeah. And so then sort of reality set in and we were, um, it was hard yards sort of through those early 2000s. Um, but then I think really took off for us, in the, particularly in the Middle East. So we went to Dubai and Abu Dhabi um, and they were building insane projects in the middle, sort of middle 2000s, so 2006, yes. five, six, seven, um, just before the GFC. And so we... We quickly sort of got onto that um, that rocket ship and ended up with about I think we had about 150 people in Dubai and Abu Dhabi um, just before the GFC. So that became the engine room for the business. It's still a strong business in Australia, um, and then out through Asia, Hong Kong, etc. So we took a view that any big project in the world could use the system and went hunting large projects. And there was nowhere better than Dubai at the time. For big uh, projects. And, and did you uh, did you have to go to um, fairs? I'm just sort of thinking how did you, how did you how did you, you know, short circuit that process? Yeah. Was there, are there global fairs and you turn up and say, oh, we've yeah, we got did a platform? And- yeah, a little, a, a little bit. I mean, mostly it was actually following Australian project directors, ah. um, project managers. So Australia is good at construction and what would happen is... Like a know, multiplex, you know. Yeah, like a multiplex. They are working globally. Um, right. We picked up Wembley on the back of multiplex, working in London. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, Grocom were working in, in the, in the yeah. Middle East. Um, but also a lot of... Uh, 
Yeah, other you know international companies were hiring Australian project directors yeah. to come in and manage their projects. So when an Australian project director came over to manage a project in, yep. a, in a different market, that arrived with your software, yep. uh, and then the the locals, the locals, I suppose per se, the locals, yep. they go, oh, geez, hang on, this is pretty good. Yeah, so we sort of we pinpoint those people. Some of them used us here, and they take the uh, product with them. Uh, others we just call up. Um, a great thing was uh, in markets like Saudi, for example, where we did quite a bit of work. Um, just getting people down in the embassy for a beer um, was yes. so we use the Australian embassy <laughs> and Austrade, yeah. Well, <laughs> but you could have a beer in the embassy, so they, we could do these events where we could bring people in, they have a beer in right. the embassy. Um, so lots of different ways of just accessing the Australian yeah. network, if you like. It's, um, it's, it's interesting you say that. So um, you would use the Australian embassy, yeah. um, of course. Austrade was another one. Yeah, and of course we've got um, Global Vic. Yeah, uh, Global Vic is, is another one. It's dressed yeah. up now. Do you yeah. think that Australian beer? Do Australian businesses realise? How good the resources are that are available to them via via the government bodies in other markets. Yeah, I don't think so. Generally, I think people assume it's yeah, it's going to be hard to access those services. I mean, look, the government could probably do more, but it does. You know, it does do a pretty good job yeah. at helping. If you roll into Austrade or Global Vic in an international city, they're generally pretty helpful. You yeah. know, we I remember, can't remember the name of the guy, but the guy who ran Austrade, um, he's actually in the embassy in. Um, in Hong Kong, he just opened up his Rolodex at the time. So he just said, who do you want to meet? Um, we know these people. And right. they were happy to, to, you know, to build connections. I think, I mean, entrepreneurs find a way, and I think that's the thing, just to find that path to market. And we'd, we'd speak to anybody who'd listen, and if they could help us and get us into a customer, then great. That, that would be my, my observation um, would be that just sort of generally that Australian business people um, – I don't know, they'd almost be reluctant to reach out to government or they'd be unsure or they might be nervous or yeah. I'm not, I don't know what the, um, what the driver is, but it, it is worth, I think, repeating Global Vic in a Victorian context or Austrade yep. in a national yep. context, yep. and I'm sure all the other states have got the same thing. These, these organisations are there for you to use to, for your success. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, Australia was great. They had lots of, um, at the time, I think they still run them, they had export programs as well and they yeah. had um, awards. So we'd go for all the export awards and it'd be free publicity. So we'd just sort of get our name out there any way we could. And, um, yeah, they were helpful. You know, the Australia guys were there to help us and um, Global Vic and LaunchVic does similar things now with, with, with companies here uh, yeah. locally. I'm, I chair LaunchVic to try and help the startups this ecosystem here. But, um. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. There's, there, there is help there. Yes, the access. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, an old um, an old um, partner of mine, uh, he sold an agency uh, before. Uh, this is sort of his first iteration of a business, and I said to him, "Why did you sell the agency?" He said, "For money." So <laughs> <laughs> he was Italian. So, um, why did you decide to sell? Uh, well, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't a seller, um, but. We built the business to a point where we, we were listed that, you know, we'd listed the company, so we were on the Australian stock market at that point. And um, eventually, I mean, we, it was a bit of a wild ride. We were pretty early as a tech business on the yeah. ASX and um, listed, yeah, we were pretty flat after we listed. I think we listed buck 90 or thereabouts um, from a share price point of view. And then the stock started to take off. And so we ended up at, I think we peaked at nearly $9. Um, <laughs> and so this sort of wild ride, but then... That must be fun. Well, it was, it, that was kind of fun on the up, but, you know, there's sort of a few bumps to get to that, that sort of run up. And then, uh, then of course, it turns down. So the short sellers moved in and yeah. comment on short sellers, but um, not that not there shouldn't be short sellers, but it was sort of unusual how we, as a public company, you have full disclosure requirements. As a short seller, you have no disclosure requirements. So you can just, you know, put out whatever you want into the market. And so we had yeah. short sellers move in. 
which you know so hit the share price and eventually got to the point where Oracle um, sort of pursued us and eventually put in a price that we couldn't say no to. Okay. Um, yeah. And it was a good result for shareholders. I mean, personally, I was uh, enjoying building business, you know, building the business, and felt we still had you know, decades ahead of the business in terms of continuing to drive innovation in construction. Um, did, your, did your contract require you to be there for a period? Yeah, so I was there about 15 months or so. So mm-hmm. it had to be there for a year to help integrate, um, which I was very happy to do. Um, also had a good, t- well, so as part of, sort of exiting the business, spent some time in Paris. Uh, we, we had an office there and Oracle had an office there, of course. So we, we worked out of Paris, or I worked out of Paris and uh, took the family over there. So it was a good way to exit. Nice, but, yeah. Um, yeah, but it was, uh, yeah, worked there for 15 months um, and then my role as CEO disappeared because um, we were you know, um, integrated into the Oracle business and look, they've done a good job with the product. Right. Um, Is it still branded within yeah, Oracle? Yeah, still brand, branded Aconex okay. within, within Oracle. Okay. Uh, so the, the product, they've looked after that uh, very well. Um, I think the challenge, you know, just how cultures blend in and Aconex had a very different culture to Oracle. So, you know, that is what it is, but it's uh, that's something that was, a, you know, I think challenging for some people as that, the businesses were pulled together. Okay, so that was um, in 2019. Yep. Uh, now, 18. Had, 18? Uh, yeah, 18. I exited in 19. Okay, okay. you, you, you yep. got out of there in 19. But you didn't go to the beach um, because I'm having a read of what you're doing right now. So you're director and co-founder of Second Quarter Ventures. Yep. Uh, you're a director of Salter, Burnett, Impact Odyssey, Pay Apps, Limited, Seek, yep. Build Exact. Build Exact, uh, yep. And um, you, part of your portfolio, you've got Saniel Ventures, which I assume yes. is your investment vehicle. Yes, that's right. Yep. And you invest in Canva. Well, you know, they're not going so well. Uh, not. <laughs> I don't mean that. They're yeah. going pretty well. Very, well, very yeah. well. Canva, Mr. Yum, Spaceship. Um, yeah. And also, as you've already mentioned, uh, now, what about Firmable as well? Yep, um, new business for us. Yep. New business. And then, of course, Launch Vic, Chair of Launch Vic. Yep. So it's not <laughs> – you're not idle, are you? No, and look, to, to be honest, um, I probably am not – maybe should be better at saying no to things. Um, so a lot of things uh, I tried to take a little bit of time and then felt, yeah, I'm not the per- I'm not the sort of person that can sit on a beach and play golf every day. Um, but – uh, yeah, when you end up being on a few boards, um, sort of pulling back some of the boards now, just uh-huh. as I focus in on this new business. But um, really love what I've done the last few years, um, particularly, I mean, Launch Vic's been great to try and help out the, the ecosystem here. Uh, enjoy Seek as a board. I mean, it's a great company. Amazing um, company. And you're uh, really nice to be in a company that's, I guess, a little bit like Aconex in some respects, um, you know, bigger, but still entrepreneurial given the size yeah. that they are. Um, well, I love talking about Seek. I, I, I just think Seek, if Seek was a Californian business, there already would have been, I don't know, three films and 17 books about, yeah. about what Seek has done. Yeah. I mean, not the least of which you. I mean, what you've done, it's a genuine story. It's a genuine great Australian story, great Australian business story, and I don't think we tell those stories anywhere near enough. Yeah. Launch Vic is a good example. Um, through Launch Vic, you will be seeing some great, I imagine, some great innovation tech stories, which hopefully are going to create, well, minimum an AconX and hopefully a Seek as well. Yeah, well, the interesting thing about where uh, Victoria is at the moment is we're where Tel Aviv was back in 2016. So the sector's grown massively over the last you know, five or so years. Um, and, you know, LaunchFix had a, had a part in that. Uh, I mean, to some degree, the ecosystem would have grown, but I think LaunchFix clearly accelerated that. But to think where, where Tel Aviv was in 2016 and yeah. they've gone, I don't know, they're probably, yeah, they're probably 10 times as big as they were in 2016. So yeah. if, we can, yeah, if we can continue to drive innovation mm-hmm. um, and drive the sector, drive investment into vent, you know, vest, venture investment into, uh, into technology businesses, I think we can follow that same path. Okay, sell to me the role the state, let's call it the state via yep. LaunchFix, sell to me the role that the state has in 
the uh, ecosystem in innovation, technology yeah. and startups. Yeah. Well, talking personally, firstly, the state should get out of the way in many respects, make it easy for business. Um, but assuming that's happened, um, then what LaunchFix done is basically catalyse the system. So um, not trying to pick winners, not trying to you know, pick the next Aconex or whatever business they're looking at, but rather help investors um, be, you know, upskill themselves, help founders upskill themselves, um, connect people. So act as that accelerant or that catalyst on the ecosystem to really uh-huh. drive innovation. And I think Launchwick does a very good job of, of you know, with, with a very low budget, actually. I mean, it's you know, not a huge budget that Launchwick has, but drives a lot of, you know, a lot of um, change within the ecosystem, a lot of um, connection between people and, you know, ultimately a lot of innovation. Okay, so let's say I'm an innovator and I'm a, an entrepreneur and I've got a startup. Um, and at what point should I look, seek out... LaunchVic? Well, really all the way through. So right from day one, um, LaunchVic will run programs for founders who are looking you know, to develop a business plan. So there'll be accelerators, actually pre-accelerators that get you ready for accelerators, then accelerators that get you ready to go and raise money, then helping investors work out who to invest into, then helping funds like, um, so Startmates in Victoria, Scalata, et cetera. So then the VC funds, yep. the early stage VC funds, and then I mean, literally all the way through. So LaunchVic touches the ecosystem at multiple points. And with a, I guess, a single goal of generating more startups in in Victoria, if we generate more starts, we create more jobs, we create more, you know, we build the economy, um, the economy of the future. So it's a, yeah, it's great work that LaunchVic does. Um, and then from there, you know, the, the other great thing that's changed, and this is not so much on LaunchVic, but just generally in the ecosystem, is that you've now got big funds out there from, you know, SquarePeg, Blackbird, Airtree, etc. Um, so there's billions of dollars worth of capital to invest into venture now, which wasn't, certainly wasn't there when we were building Aconex. So it's a, a nice change. It is a great change, isn't it? Isn't it? And of course, you know, it's it's private money. So therefore, yep. you know, you, you've got different criteria than yep. if you, well, as you did, you went to the ASX. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I'd say about launch, the other thing we're doing is catalyzing by ca- it's setting up funds that catalyse private sector investments. One of the great funds that Launch Vic has is the Alice Anderson Fund, which is focused on amazing, yeah, female founders. Uh, and what we'll do is match one for three. So it has to be you know, for every three dollars of private sector investment, we'll put in a dollar. Um, so it's a way of providing you know up to two, three hundred thousand dollars of extra investment into those startups. So Alison Anderson, she was a mechanic. Yeah, she was a mechanic. Um, I think. Yeah, back when... Like 100 years ago. Yeah, like 100 years ago, I set yeah. up a, um, a garage and yeah. was probably the only you know, female... I think it was all women in that garage. Yeah, garage, so. it's a great story. It's yeah. a, there's another film. So there yeah. should be a film about Seek, there should be a film about you, there should be a film about um, Alice Anderson. Yeah, Alice Anderson, yeah. I mean, interesting story. Yeah. On, maybe we should start up a film company. So <laughs> if we started a film company, what could LaunchVic do for us? I suppose they could help us through the process. Help, help you find um, talent, help you connect to investors... I mean, all the way through. So Excellent. Not that you need it, but you know. <laughs> firmable. Yes. Firmable. I like the name. Where'd that come from? Uh, so the company's focused on firmographic data. So just like demographic data for people, what we're focused on is getting as much information as we can about companies. Um, so that's where the word firm, so firm, firmographic um, and felt that was a good name that was somewhat memorable. So we'll see it's, how it's But it's not firmographic, it's firmable though. Yeah, so it's fir- firmable's name of the company, but right. the data sets that we provide effectively firmographic data sets. Okay. Um, so <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. So um, what do I do with it? So I go to firmable, what am I buying? So you're buying data to help you sell. So if you're, um, you're a sales team and you want to get information about the businesses you're selling to, uh, marketing to, so you want to get lists, um, you know, a good example would be I've got an ideal customer that I'm selling to. How do I find another 20, 100, 1,000 that look like that customer I'm selling to for businesses? So I'm selling, selling to a – and I'm selling HR software and I'm selling HR software to businesses that are – 
have around 50 staff, 50 to right. 100 staff that work in a certain region. So you can basically map and triage down, we've got about, I think, 1.25 million businesses on the database at the moment. <laughs> then you triage that down to it could be the 20 that completely match your profile. But you can use, you've got technographic data, so all the tools that they're using, you've got um, uh, all the different registries we have in Australia. So it might be like a, like a whether they have an AFSL, for example, an Australian Financial Services Licence, yep. modern slavery statements, you know, we're just pulling all of the data we can about a business and um, aggregating that matching it, structuring it into one data set. At what stage is that at, Firmable? Uh, about to launch. So we've had a, we've been building the product now for the better part of nine months. Right. Um, and that's sort of two sides to building the product. There's the, the application uh, and then there's the data set. And actually quite tricky to pull data. It's not that hard to find data. It's how you then match it and pull it together. Because if you match it incorrectly and you end up with, you know, BHP's data lined up with Rio Tinto's data that doesn't make any sense. So you've got to, it's actually quite tricky to, to line it all up. Um, it's almost where software was, sort of a, the analogy for me is data, data-based businesses are where software was 20, 30, 40 years ago, where a lot of companies are doing it on a bespoke basis, trying to build their, aggregate their own data sets. What we're doing is doing that for companies that don't have to do it themselves. Right. So using so in sales, in marketing, um, HR's an application, so for hiring, for finding talent, um, and ultimately credit. I mean, you could see it as sort of like a, a more modern Dun & Bradstreet, but sort of coming at it from the sales and marketing angle rather than the credit angle. Amazing. All right, so uh, we'll look forward to watching how Firmable goes. Yeah, it's nice to be building a business again. I mean, uh, I must say, for me, the driver <laughs> is, it's you know, it's not, I mean, building a business is sort of a creative outlet for me. I, could, I just, you know, it's kind of building Lego as a kid or whatever it is. It's like putting the pieces together a business. And I've got to say, you know, being on boards, it's, you know, it's good, but... It's not quite the same as being there at the coalface building something day in, day out. So, yeah. Back to COVID. Yep. So um, you were involved in having a look at uh, so an a, uh, inquiry into yep. into the tracing. Contact tracing, yep. I, um, so, I mean, I keep, on, I keep on banging on about this, so it's probably getting boring, but yep. I, I would have thought that a inquiry was a good thing for us to do yep. in order to, okay, so let's say a pandemic is going to come again. Yep. Um, and a respiratory pandemic. Yes. So knowing what we did right, knowing what we did wrong, knowing what would be the best course of action next time round, I don't know. I don't feel confident that we've got that information or am I wrong? I think, yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think we should be doing, looking back and learning from it. I mean, what we were doing, well, just give you, just use contact tracing example. So it was very weird. We, we did a tour around Australia right in the middle of COVID and to leave Melbourne where, you know, we, couldn't go around the corner and then you end up in Darwin and people having bucks days at the pub because um so it's just every city was different and you know Melbourne was clearly in a different situation to a lot of you know a lot of the rest of Australia but just this sense of government working together across the states just didn't happen Um, and bizarrely we'd find that we'd be speaking to people within the health departments that hadn't spoken to people at the corresponding health departments of other states and you know why would you pick up the phone to your your you know, your peer who's in your role in other states. So was, there's a lot of eye-opening things about how government works in Australia. Um, but we, you know, the way contract tracing worked, I mean, never really worked properly in Australia. Um, it could have, um, but trying to get states and the federal government to work together um, was a bit too tricky um, for, for the time. Um, even given the challenges of the time, it still didn't happen. Uh, but, yeah, I think learning from those things would be, yeah, we've got to learn from them. Right, um, right. Yeah. I, it's not, it's not, it's, you know, I think it'll often be trying to catch people what they did wrong and clearly some bad decisions were made and a lot of good decisions were made as well. But it's not so much that, it's finding what 
what worked and what or exactly. what do we need to get ready for next time? So, like contact racing, we could fix that now so that next time we have something, exactly, the states can all communicate yeah. between each other. Well, and this is, I suppose, my where I just get um, annoyed in, in that. How, how do we do, let's call it an inquiry. Mm. There's probably a better word than that, but let's just call it an inquiry. Um, but it's not political. It, it, there's no political intent to the inquiry. It's not about saying you did wrong, you'd made a mistake or yeah. you know whoever. Right. It's actually simply about let's be objective. Uh, let's, look at the, let's look at what was done in order to get it right next time around. I don't see the, pro- the problem with that. There is no problem with that as a proposition, mm. but I think there is a problem with that in, in execution. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um. Well, I think unfortunately it will become political one way or another. Right. Somehow you need to. It does. Right, maybe, maybe keep keep the questioning from non-political people. Uh, right. Um, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So don't get nervous because I'm going to get political. Um, I'm going to put you in charge. <laughs> okay. So you're in charge, uh, state or country. What would you prefer? Interestingly, pre-COVID, I would have said federal for sure. But yeah, but it's now? Interesting, interesting how much power the states actually had during I, COVID. I know. Right. I, I, I'm sort of with you. Well, in fact, it was um. I think Paul Keating said, um, "If you really, you, you're better off being a premier than you are in the PM." I think I think it was him yeah. who just sort of said, "You know, actually, the real power where real power lies, or yeah. or with the the real ability to make change." Yeah, impacts maybe. at the state level. Okay, yeah. so all right, so just give us a couple of ideas on what you'd do specifically in relation to COVID, or no, just just the state. I mean, I, I assume you want our state to prosper. Oh, I mean, broadly, um, well, I come from a you know let innovation and let business build I'm very much a you know I see business as being the solution to a lot of what um you know a lot of what's wrong so my view is government can't fix a lot of things and government is slow and wasteful um is of course a role for government but if we can release innovation and release business so that's you know making sure our tax environment encourages the right things yes. um, so I'd be cleaning up tax I mean tax is a simple one that has always frustrated the hell out of me, and every state has it, is payroll tax. Why on yeah. earth are you taxed for employing somebody? Uh, makes zero sense to me. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So, yeah, tax consumption, high GST, et cetera, but yep. don't tax people who are employing people. Yep. Um, we want more jobs. Um, just, yeah, free it up so people can innovate. Uh, you know, I could go on, I mean, being on the board of Salter and seeing that, um, being on the board of Salter and seeing that the, um, the taxes in property are not, going away they're getting worse so um, I think there's a budget in the state two years ago or maybe three years ago where 17 something it was in the teens anyway changes or new taxes were introduced into the property industry so everything from stamp duty going up um, land tax going up um, you know, congestion type taxes where if you build too close to the city and and some of those are fine but you can't be having 15 changes to property tax and then Unsurprisingly, we have a, a housing crisis because it, we make it hard for people to develop apartments. If you want to, if you want to make apartments cheaper, build more of them. It's simply a supply yeah. issue. Um, yeah. So, and that's what I think business can. It's releasing people will build buildings if they're given the opportunity to, and they need to be able to make some money, make some profit um, right. on the way through. But ma- allow people to do that so they can build what we need. So, right. um, so it's, I just free up a lot of. I think there's a lot, and people generally. Again, I have a maybe a, an optimistic view of business, but I think most people are building businesses not to make money for themselves. I mean, yeah, that happens along the way, but they do it because they love it. Right. Um, you don't do you don't build a business unless you love it because it's such a lot of hard work yeah. um, and all so, encompassing and all encompassing. Yeah, yeah. Um, have have a bit more of a think about what you might do when you're in charge. In the meantime, I'm gonna. Um, this is Freddie. I didn't introduce Freddie at the start, so Freddie does the production. Freddie's from Good One. He produces our sales podcast. So Freddie. Not only is he here just to make sure we, you know, are technically under control, 
um, I just say, um, Freddie, if you've got any questions, maybe, or a question. Might be the hard ones. Uh, don't you worry, he's, he's way smarter <laughs> than me. So, Freddie, over to you. Uh, thank you, Russ, and thank you, Lee. Um, I was reading a, a blog on one of your websites yes, uh, and surprised to find a, quite a substantial amount of material just about sales yes, um, and about the importance of it to founders especially. Yep. Yep. Um, so hearing that you, you were starting out at McKinsey mm. um, before you – so was sales a, a natural skill of yours and do you have any sort of nightmare memories of – Starting yeah. out those first couple of pitches, and I've got to say, sales was not something that I'd done. Um, so, and McKinsey, I guess you you sell your work in a sense, but as a junior person within McKinsey, you're not selling the job to a client. Well, so the logo helps too. The logo yeah. helps definitely helps. Um, but yeah, so I, no, I had no sales background, and actually, one of our investors, early investors, as we were building the business, said you need to learn how to sell. It was good advice. Um, so when picked up those. Probably pretty cheesy in hindsight, but those American sales books on how to how to be how to be a salesperson. You Somebody know, to, moved the cheese. Yeah, those sort of things. <laughs> and I was trying to think, um, what's his name, Brian Tracy. And some of it's a bit these days probably a bit cheesy, but it was um, you know, how to engage in conversation, how to handle objections, all those sort of things. So I learned how to how to sell. Yeah, um, right. But then how to build a sales team. So that's the other thing. I, I think there's often in tech a view that the very best tech businesses, and some don't need sales teams. You know, if you're Canva or Atlassian or whatever. Um, that's fine. You can probably do do with our sales team. A lot of it's done through the marketing team and and people coming through. You know, sort of product led sales. That's great, product led growth. But for most businesses, even in tech, you've still got to go and sell to somebody. So in construction, there was nobody sitting around in construction site saying, "I want a web based collaboration system to run my project." So we had to literally, and when I say we, it was me to start. I mean, Rob, the other co-founder, did a bit as well, but I largely led our sales. And it was coming into the office, picking up the phone, and cold calling construction project managers and trying to get into their project. So it was, it was hard. It was grueling. Um, I um, ate a lot of potato cakes to get through and uh, put on a few, a few kilos <laughs> just trying to handle the ups and downs of making calls. And, yeah, it was hard work. It was the hardest I've ever worked was having being our only uh, salesperson uh, or main salesperson. Then we built the team around me and I eventually hired – well, not too far down the track, hired salespeople who are far better than me, so they didn't end up running the sales team. But what a thrill when you get that phone call. Yeah, and I, yeah, that's right. And I'm sort of um, – I still like – so while I, that was tough, I did get a bit of a bug for sales and sort of in, in, enjoy it, you know, that sense of uh, the pursuit, if you like. So it's – and you win it and, yeah. The only problem was I, I eventually had to get out of price negotiations because I was so focused on winning the deal that sometimes I'd give the product away too, too cheaply. Yes, so, yes. So I often sort of re- remove myself from the negotiation and sort of be behind the scenes on that. But, uh, yeah, so you have to recognise where you have biases and problems as well. So um, before we turn on the microphones, you were talking about um, failing. Yep. Uh, and the lack of conversations, the lack of conversations or lack of celebration around failing. And if you're feeding yep. them about getting out there and, din- and making a dint in the world, you've got to yep. be prepared to fail. Yeah, and I think uh, it's, it's, I think it's slowly changing Australia. But I think for a long time, the if you failed in Australia as an entrepreneur, it was very hard to start again. I think you know, very different in the US. I lived in Silicon Valley for four years, and the the in, you know that embrace of failure, that it's a step towards success and that if you fail once at a startup, that's not the end of the world. Um, I think also just failure day to day. Like we, we rode this sort of um, continual roller coaster of we'd get some stuff right, we got a lot of stuff wrong and those mistakes helped us build a better business. So we learned from them, um, we kept making mistakes, we never stopped making mistakes but 
we tried to sort of reflect and almost like you do in tech, do a retro. What do we learn from yeah. that and, and yeah. moving forward? And a culture of failure, though, that must actually be liberating. Yeah, I think this sense of being able to try something um, and that it doesn't define your career. I think, again, it's changed a bit. Um, you know, people, I think, 10, 10 20 years ago, uh, professionals probably wouldn't have seen as tech as a smart career path. Um, that it was too risky. But I think, you know, the, the current generation of people coming through uni and the early stage of their career, I think, are much more open to, to taking that chance. But as an ecosystem, we have to be prepared to yeah, embrace failure and talk about that as part of the journey. Okay, let's get practical. How many times am I actually allowed to fail? Because, <laughs> you know, like, uh, it's been 17 times now. Right? <laughs> I think, yeah, I think, I mean, multiple failures. You see some of the best entrepreneurs are not, you know, I'm thinking perhaps more of US examples, but they've had multiple failures yeah. along the way. Yeah. It's not just one. Um, it's often... Yeah, might not be fifty, um, but it's or fifteen, but it's you know it's two, three, four, five. Yeah, so. I get it. Yeah. Hey Lee, it's been unreal having a chat to you. Um, I don't Thanks even know how long we've been speaking for, but it's been fantastic. Um, Lee, you're still a young man. You've got so much more to do. Um, I want you to keep thinking about what you do when you're the, when you're in charge. Uh, <laughs> you, yeah, there's so much more ahead of you. Um, obviously, your investment decisions have been incredible. Um, Canva, Mister Yum, Spaceship, and we didn't even get to talk about those things, yep. but they've been incredible. Um, what you built at a, as a very young man around the world, pretty damn impressive. Lee, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Russell. Great chat. And thanks, Freddie.